From WFIU in Bloomington, Indiana, I'm Kate Young, and this is Earth Eats. We just knew that there was demand for it, so to me, what we do is comfort food. This week on our show, Cassie Jensen and Amanda Armstrong of Two Sticks Bakery share their wisdom on the work-life balance and enjoying treats in moderation. And Harvest Public Media has a story on citizen scientists testing well water. That's all just ahead on Earth Eats, so stay with us. We'll start with some food news with Renee Reed. Hello, Renee. Hello, Kate. Several East African countries, including Kenya, Ethiopia, and Somalia, are fending off looming locust swarms up to 37 miles long and 25 miles wide. The swarms descend upon crops and devour them. This scale of infestation has not been seen in more than a half century. Swarms can travel up to 100 miles per day and consume nearly all green vegetation in their path, with clouds of 40 million critters. The United Nations says $76 million is needed immediately to boost spraying of insecticides. War in Yemen and Somalia have created havens for locusts to breed, as countries mired in conflict can do little to curb their numbers. An El Nino-like event in the Indian Ocean caused a shift in the rainfall calendar this year, which initially helped crops grow and alleviated a long drought. However, the same conditions spurred an explosive breeding season for locusts. The Indian Ocean warm spell usually happens about once a decade, but climate scientists have shown they are becoming more frequent and more intense as global temperatures rise. Dual cyclones in May and October 2018 spurred more off-season vegetation for the locusts to feed on in the Arabian Peninsula and southern Iran, India, and Pakistan. Those swarms moved to Ethiopia and Somalia in October last year. Rainy conditions are expected to continue through June. Some analysts predict swarms will get worse in the coming months, reaching up to 400 times their current size. In Somalia, the UN Food and Agriculture Organization is helping to deploy biopesticides. Instead of chemical pesticides, they spray spores of a fungus which makes a toxin that kills only locusts and related grasshoppers. Researchers have been developing the alternative since the last massive locust outbreak in Africa in 2003 through 2005. The alternative is now cheaper, more effective, lasts longer in the desert heat, and is easier to store than it was last time around. Analysts say the infestation will spark a humanitarian crisis in the coming months, with severe food shortages and food insecurity, as new waves of locusts pester planting season in March and harvest over the summer. A federal jury in Cape Girardeau, Missouri, ruled last week that German agribusiness giants Bayer and BASF will pay $250 million in punitive damages and an additional $15 million in damages to Bader Farms, the largest peach farm in the state, for damage caused by their dicamba-related products. Prior to their acquisition by Bayer, Monsanto released the first dicamba-resistant seeds in 2015 without releasing the approved correlating herbicide until 2017. For that two-year gap, Bader Farms' harvest dropped from around 160,000 bushels in the early 2000s to as low as 12,000 bushels in 2018. 
The damage was caused by older, more volatile, and illegally sprayed forms of dicamba drifting from nearby fields with dicamba-resistant seeds. The Missouri jury found that Monsanto was negligent in releasing the dicamba-tolerant seeds without the herbicide. Internal documents released during the trial showed that Bayer and BASF anticipated issues of drift or off-target movement before the new technology's release. The jury also found Monsanto and BASF were negligent in releasing new versions of dicamba falsely advertised as less likely to drift. Bayer says they will appeal the decision. The Bader Farms lawsuit is the first of around 150 filed by farmers scheduled to go to trial this year. Thanks to Chad Bouchard and Taylor Killo for those reports. For Earth Eats News, I'm Renee Reed. Thanks, Renee. You're welcome, Kate. Production support comes from Bill Brown at Griffey Creek Studio, architectural design and consulting for residential, commercial, and community projects. Sustainable, energy-positive, and resilient design for a rapidly changing world. Bill at GriffeyCreek.studio. Elizabeth Rue, enrolled agent with Personal Financial Services, assisting businesses and individuals with tax preparation and planning for over 15 years. More at PersonalFinancialServices.net and insurance agent Dan Williamson of Bill Resch Insurance, offering comprehensive auto, business, and home coverage in affiliation with Pekin Insurance. Beyond the expected. More at 812-336-6838. If you're lucky enough to have a locally owned and operated bakery in your neighborhood, then you know how happy the residents were in Bryan Park and Elm Heights near downtown Bloomington when Two Sticks Bakery opened on South Washington. Two Sticks opened their doors in 2018, in the ground floor retail space of a new infill apartment building with an old town feel. There's not a lot of parking, but that works because there's not a lot of seating in the bakery. It's more of a grab-and-go kind of place, with coffee, espresso, and a huge spread of handcrafted baked goods. And turnovers and scones and hand pies and focaccia. It's the kind of place you dash into on your way to work or pop in for a midday break. They're open Tuesday through Saturday from 7.30 to 4 and Sundays from 9 to 2. Two Sticks has been buzzing nonstop since opening day. I sat down with the owners, Cassie Jensen and Amanda Armstrong, to learn more about their approach to baking and to running a small business. I'm Cassie Jensen. Amanda Armstrong of Two Sticks Bakery. Things that we offer, uh, it's in my mind it's broken down into breakfast pastries, savory pastries, and like cookies and bars and cake, like treats, like mm -hmm. afternoon treats or breakfast treats. You can totally eat a cookie for breakfast. We don't judge. We have cinnamon rolls and Danish and turnovers and scones and hand pies and focaccia, cookies. We have vegan and gluten-free options as well. Bars, cake, there's a cake every day by the slice. We have a custom cake menu online. We also can offer catering options where we can do half-size bars of our regular offerings. I wanted to know how they got connected as business partners. We worked together at Feast, and Cassie was working 
full-time at Feast and doing the farmer's market. I just thought it was the coolest thing that she was pursuing her dream outside of it. And so I was interested in what she was doing and I knew that an investor had approached her and I knew that I didn't want to work that job the rest of my life. I needed something more. It just kind of happened from conversation, I feel like. We were both really in similar places in life and ready to spread our wings and do our own thing and had similar goals in mind. So it kind of worked out well. We had an investor who we've paid off and then was getting ready to step out so that Cassie and I will be the sole owners. I asked Cassie how she came up with the name. I was home baking cookies all, like that's my thing. I always had cookie dough in my freezer and I was always making cookies. And I later would look like, oh, all of the recipes call for two sticks of butter. I liked the idea of a number and the name and so just suddenly came to me. I was like, that's it, two sticks. I'm like an outdoorsy, adventurous person, so I wanted the look of the logo to be more of a, an outdoorsy look, but it does mean two sticks of butter. I asked Cassie and Amanda, what's been surprising for them about starting their bakery? When we look at our original numbers from our business plan, we have blown those numbers out of the water in a way that we never expected. It's just such a it's so much different than what I expected in that avenue and just the tasks of taking on employees and living up to the challenges of being an owner in my own mind. So that has been a lot different than I expected. Can you say more about what the challenges are in your own mind? Yeah, um, for me personally, it's just being a leader and not being afraid to speak my mind and say what needs to be done. And it just doesn't come natural to me. I'm, I'm a little bit more of the shy one of the two of us. And I thought it would be easier. But yeah, those and just uh, having trusting others to uh, do your product when you're not here and serve it the way you want it to be served and display it the way that you want it to be displayed. And so really just finding a place of trust, I think, is a big thing, too, and that I'm learning to do. It's like I can't do it all, so I must step back and trust others. Well, for me, the whole process was fast and easy almost. Because you hear that starting a business is all these challenges, and I feel like I started working on the business plan in November of 17, and we were ready to open eight months yeah. later. This was an empty room. So all of the things that had to happen happened really quickly and for the most part effortlessly. And so in my mind, it was like, oh my gosh, even our opening day, even how we came up with a production schedule for something that we hadn't been producing on a large, large scale, I feel like we all, as a, you know, even our front of house adjusted to it really well. So I was very surprised at how all of that happened. That just speaks to the experience that we had coming into this. I was at Feast for eight years. Amanda was there for three years. Jamie was there for six years. So we had all worked together in that environment for such a long time that I think just the level of production was way more than we expected it to be. And I know you guys sold out like on your first day pretty early. Is that true? Yeah, and a part of that was just having no idea what to expect. Yeah. Even this Christmas Eve, we, we've we only experienced one other Christmas Eve, and that was when we had only been open for about five months, so not as much mm -hmm. knowledge of us. This last Christmas Eve, I, you could have 
pushed me over and had to scrape me off the floor. I was so blown away by the amount of people who were here waiting when we opened the doors. And we still did not have enough for the case that day. I mean, it was incredible. It's incredible. Yeah, yeah the, the very first day, though, we had no idea what we yeah. were walking into. Yeah. <laughs> so now there's definitely a system. Like, Saturdays are... Saturdays are always, you know, busy days for us. And so now we know, like, well, once the first mm -hmm. bake is done, start baking more things so that we're ahead of the game. Uh, so, yes, yeah, some, some learning has happened, mm -hmm. thankfully. So did you have employees from the beginning? Like, did you need... Yes. We had like told ourselves in our business plan that it was just going to be me and Cassie and we would bake and hop up front and do. <laughs> uh, but yes, we did open with um, mainly because we decided to open with an espresso machine, which was not part of our original plan. So when we had the espresso machine, we knew we had to have a barista. So yeah, we definitely needed to have more hands and then, you know, progress to needing to have a dishwasher and those kind of things, too. I wanted to know how they balance customer demands with their own limits and needs. Our space is limited, uh, which means our staff is limited, and so we have to say no. Yeah. And I, I feel like our hours also dictate that. There's never going to be a time that I'm working until 8 o'clock at night because we close at 4. It's a pretty uh, limited. And, and I feel like Cassie and I are both really good about saying no. I'm tired. I can't do any more. Or our prep bakers are already, they're already maxed out. So I feel like we have a really good handle on just being like, we'll work as hard as we can work. And then we're going to go. I mean, I have two kids, so I still have to go pick up kids from school and do those kind of things. So thankfully, the schedule is very conducive to that. So I can get up early and be done early and still have the evening to be a normal person. <laughs> yeah, I think that's a rare thing for mm -hmm. a small business owner totally, is yeah. to be a regular person. Yes. <laughs> and sharing the tasks that we've chosen to go in it together rather than taking it all on ourselves mm -hmm. to share the tasks. And yeah, I definitely find, I'm finding more often than not, my body is forcing me to say no. So I'm listening to it and just going with the flow. Is that ever challenging when someone's really like, yeah, but I need this cake? <laughs> we hear that a lot. I mean, Cassie does all the custom cakes, so. Our front of house is usually the one who has to answer that question and to stand, you know, kind of be the first line of defense. We have a set schedule of how many cakes per day, and when we've hit that max, we've hit that max. And that's that protects Cassie, and it also makes it easy to, to be like, you know, we just can't without feeling too personal about it. <laughs> it wasn't in the beginning, and I definitely set those standards after just going a little too wild and feeling I could do it all for a minute there and then I was like whoa 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 hold the phone uh, and I, I we would joke that Amanda would have to answer the phone because I'm too much of a pushover and I'd be like oh yes I'll do it and then I'm like hanging up the phone I'm like ah why did I do that so I'm like somebody else has to answer the phone because I just can't say no but now I it's it is it's a lot easier it's gotten easier in a time when there's keto and paleo and gluten-free and what made you think Oh, now's a good time for a bakery. Man, I don't know. So my, my background's in dietetics, um, and I do a lot of playing around with my own diet just for to see how I feel. But I truly feel, I don't, I don't know that we really thought about it that way. We just knew that there was demand for it. So to me, 
what we do is comfort food. It's, it's not super elegant and a creation of art. It's things that taste so good. They either transport people back to a memory or I feel like there's just such a connection to food for people and how we do it and our, our goal with how we produce our baked goods I think really hits that button for them and it's apparently slightly addictive. Mm -hmm. So <laughs> I want to eat food and desserts that just make my mouth water. I don't care about the art in like the piece of art that you don't want to touch. Yeah. I want something to make my mouth water and that's what draws me to a bakery and there's been bakeries around the country that I've visited and I've been inspired by so I've kind of always taken pieces along the way and I'm like oh I'd love to do that and that and that. I, I don't think we even thought so much about the diets and the fads mm -hmm. of we've kind of snuck some of those in our mm -hmm. daily so uh, you know vegan and gluten-free items and things like that but I definitely felt it was something that was missing in Bloomington that just mouth-watering, wholesome, organic, made from scratch baked goods. So my mindset on food has always been more like everything in moderation. Everything in moderation. <laughs> yes, that's totally my like cuz I'm not going to eat till I feel sick, but I just love to just taste it and get enough and really taste it though. And we've been talking a lot about this lately about just being mindful while you eat your food and rather than staring at your phone or doing all these other things, but really tasting your food and uh, that's something we've been bringing up lately. So, so if it's an everything in moderation approach, and not just Twinkies in moderation, but think about the quality of what you're eating. Something that's really high quality is going to be more satiating than, I mean, I could slam four, four Twinkies, mm -hmm. but the honey caramel pecan bar that Cassie makes, I can only eat half of it. And then I'm I'm good. So I think there's that lesson too and just being really intentional about what you're eating and really enjoying it and don't have any guilt about it. Just enjoy it and then go do other things. <laughs> go be a nice person. <laughs> I follow you on Instagram and your presence is really consistent and I just wondered if you could talk a little bit about your approach to Instagram and how you use it. I, in previous work, realize the power of social media. It's free, first of all, and it is marketing and you can use it that way. And so I'd taken a course and learned how to word things, how, what the picture should be like. So when we opened, we didn't have money for advertising. Advertising is crazy expensive. And we were like, okay, well, uh, we'll just do social media. And I realized that I needed to be very consistent with it. So we would post our, you know, a post each day, but also like people want to know all the time. People will call and be like what's in the case right now is there anything left like okay so let's show them what's in the case you know first thing in the morning you'll know what kind of cake we have or whatever so it was intentional and also it's really fun to just I think people like being able to connect with us a lot of people I have no idea who they are in person but we're basically best friends online mm -hmm. and I think that that's you know part of our goal the openness of the environment here is to be able to connect with people and being on social media and and handling the social media ourselves and answering the messages ourselves and replying to the comments like that's important to to everyone including us so um, yeah social media has been an amazing tool and people tell us all the time that they saw the story and that's why they came in or they saw the post so it definitely is effective tool for marketing for us
connecting with the customer is a big part of what you're doing here. And I think that's really obvious in yeah. the visual aspect of the kitchen being right there. Right. Yes. Yeah. That was very intentional too. And it's fun because for the most part I can hear interactions and it's like, oh, if they need to talk to us or if there's a situation where one of us needs to step in, we're able to do that. And I think that helps us to be better owners and makes our staff feel supported as well. I don't know. And just to be able to connect with people who support us is really important. I mean, they, some people come every single day and it's hard to say thank you for that and what it means to us, but to be able to build a relationship with a customer is pretty remarkable. Cassie was kind enough to walk us through the steps of her pecan bars. The honey caramel pecan bars. And basically I start with a triple batch every time I make them. And I start by doing the shortbread crust first. And I can actually do a couple bowls of shortbread crust and have them ready and prepared at a, at a time. That way I can bust out a batch as fast as possible. And so basically I will foil these nine by 13 pans and then s split that shortbread crust into you know three. And then that gets baked for 11 minutes. And so a slightly golden shortbread bottom and it comes out of the oven. And then I begin to work on the filling, which takes our biggest pot possible. Um, and I put the ingredients, which is the butter, brown sugar, and honey to make a caramel. And once, so you get it to like a boiling uh, and you boil for three minutes. And just like a caramel, you have to add your butter and heavy cream. So it gets it to stop cooking. And so you add your butter and cream and then the pecans, you fold it all in. And after I've got the crust out of the oven, I split the filling into three on the on these and then back in the oven it goes and it goes for another 13 minutes and they, these are pretty precise they're solid and there's no straying like cakes you know it can maybe need another 30 seconds or another minute these are solid every single time and how many bars will you get out of each so pan this will be cut three by five so i'll get 15 out of it um, and you've seen them, the portion size is pretty generous, I think for, I mean, you can only eat about half of it, I think, and you definitely share it with somebody. So they have by far become one of our best sellers and something I feel like I would look back as the thing that started it all almost. Here's Amanda describing the bars. Well, I'm a sucker for shortbread. So the crust is the most perfect, delicious shortbread base. And the filling is it's like a caramely covered pecan, but the honey adds this layer to it that makes people say, why are these so good? And I think that's what it is. It's like pecan pie tightened up so it's more caramely and in a bar form. And they're pretty mind blowing. Amanda Armstrong and Cassie Jensen of Two Sticks Bakery also share their vegan, gluten-free peanut butter bar recipe on our website, eartheats.org. Over 13 million American households get their drinking water from private wells, Yet, well owners aren't required to have their water tested by state or federal agencies, meaning dangerous contamination can go unchecked for years. 
But as Harvest Public Media's Christina Stella reports, that blind spot has led to a push in training communities to test their own water supplies. It's first period at Freeman High in the southeastern town of Adams, Nebraska. A handful of seniors from the school's Future Farmers of America Club huddle around a spread of plastic bottles and little glass test tubes. Addison Dorn braved the Midwestern cold the night before to collect water samples from her family's well. In a minute, they'll test it for contamination, like too many nitrates. Yeah, it's usually it usually gets in well water around here because of fertilizers. Nitrogen is found in fertilizers, and so when there's like a lot of rain or irrigation, it can sometimes seep into your groundwater, which will go to into your well. Polluted waters put many rural communities at risk for long-term health complications like cancer, birth defects. A 2018 National Institute of Health study suggested about a quarter of wells in agricultural communities aren't safe to drink from because of high nitrate levels. That's partly why Tony Jensen, Freeman's agriculture teacher and FFA sponsor, enrolled the school in the University of Nebraska-Lincoln's Know Your Well program. I don't think a lot of people realize that you should get it tested as often as you should. And, you know, so it's kind of also that educational component for the community. The citizen science program places scientists in classrooms across the state to teach young people how to spot unsafe drinking water. Mary Skopek, who runs the University of Iowa's Lakeside Laboratory, says citizen science was historically for people privileged enough to do it as a hobby. Think Sir Isaac Newton or Charles Darwin. But I'd say within the last 20 years, for sure, there's been this strong upswing in folks that that wouldn't identify themselves as scientists who care about the environment. She supervised a similar program in Iowa for 10 years, which trained the public to test local streams and creeks. At its peak, Scopec's team had 5,000 volunteers. After a few years, word of mouth was so strong that we didn't have to advertise at all. Harry Hefer, who lives just south of Lincoln, has volunteered for a few well testing programs over the years. He says ag communities play a critical role in testing their water quality. I think the concept of it is great because, you know, government can't go out there and test every well and get information from it. And even now, um, the city county health department likely has records when the well's first put in. But after that, there's no record of what happens to the water. Hefer has watched his nitrate levels climb up to 18 parts per million over the years. He eventually warned his neighbors, some of whom have young children. That's exactly the kind of conversation the Know Your Well program hopes for, by teaching younger people to be aware of water issues. Back at Freeman High, Addison's friend Rayanne shows her how to mix the well water with a reactant in a sample tube. The pinker it turns, the higher the nitrate content. And then you just let it sit, and then color development will happen over time. So this is pretty easy. Yeah. A few minutes later, the group is surprised to see the tube turn cotton candy pink. We have a lot of nitrate, what we found out. High levels. Yeah, high levels of nitrate, like 10 to 14. Thankfully, Dorn won't be drinking from that well. It's used for irrigation. But Skopek thinks discoveries like these are important, especially in a classroom setting, because they reinforce trust in the scientific process. She's also found that communities are less likely to discuss solutions, like working to use fertilizer more precisely or installing a home filtration system, if they can't see for themselves that they have a problem. And I think that's really, really powerful because most people hated science when they went through it in school because they saw it as a test right or wrong answer, as opposed to a process of gathering and understanding information. In Scopec's view, a pink test tube doesn't have to feel like a gotcha moment. It can just as easily be the start of a life-saving conversation.
For NET News, I'm Christina Stella. Harvest Public Media reports on food and farming in the heartland. Learn more at harvestpublicmedia.org. That's all we have time for today. Thanks for listening. The Earth Eats team includes Ayoban Binder, Chad Bouchard, Mark Chilla, Abraham Hill, Taylor Killo, Josephine McRobbie, Daniel Orr, the IU Food Institute, Harvest Public Media, and me, Renee Reed. Our theme music is composed by Aaron Toby and performed by Aaron and Matt Toby. Earth Eats is produced and edited by Kate Young, and our executive producer is John Bailey. Special thanks this week to Cassie Jensen, Amanda Armstrong, and everyone at Two Sticks Bakery. Production support comes from insurance agent Dan Williamson of Bill Rush Insurance, offering comprehensive auto, business, and home coverage in affiliation with Pekin Insurance. Beyond the expected. More at 812-336-6838. Bill Brown at Griffey Creek Studio, architectural design and consulting for residential, commercial, and community projects. Sustainable, energy-positive, and resilient design for a rapidly changing world. Bill at GriffeyCreek.studio. And Elizabeth Rue, enrolled agent providing customized financial services for individuals, businesses, and disabled adults, including tax planning, bill paying, and estate services. More at personalfinancialservices.net. Mm-hmm.